Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. If this is the first one you've seen, you might want to go to batgap.com and you'll see several hundred other ones all archived and categorized in various ways. There's a bunch of other things to explore on the website. And uh, I always mention at the beginning the way NPR does that this show is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners. So if you feel moved to do so, there's a donate button on the site. My guest today is Dana Sawyer. I had Dana on the show about five years ago when I was more or less first getting started with it. And I just listened to that interview the other day and I, I thought it was a good one, if, if, you, if I do say so myself. We had a lively conversation. Dana has also been part of some other things we've done. He was part of an uh, interview with Jeffrey Kripal, which you can find on the site. And he was a participant in the um, group conversation we had at Sophia University last October. And you'll find that on the site as well. Dana is a professor of religion and philosophy at the Maine College of Art and a lecturer on world religions for the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine. He has both academic ex expertise and experience in Hindu and Buddhist systems of philosophy and has an interest in the appeal of Asian religions for the Western mind. He has written a critically acclaimed biography of Aldous Huxley along with the book we're about to talk about today, which is a biography of Houston Smith. Dana is his authorized biographer, and he lectures widely on the perennial philosophy. He lives in Portland, Maine, with his artist wife, Stephanie, and travels regularly to India. He's been there quite a few times, and as a matter of fact, he's going there in December, and if anyone would like to go with him, it's possible to join in on the little tour that he's leading of Benares and Rishikesh and places like that in India. And Dana and I have been good friends for 45 years. We first met in about 1971 when I was 21 and he was 19, and I came to his college in Connecticut teaching Transcendental Meditation, which he learned. So, here we are. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. Yeah. Actually, Dana and I did this interview out at the SAND conference in October, but I'm glad we're doing it again. Well, we had to do it again because the audio didn't work for some reason. We didn't know that at the time, but we didn't get Dana's side of the conversation. And also, we were pressed for time. We only had an hour, and today we're probably going to end up going two hours like we usually do. People might ask, why is it? There's, there's so many people out there these days who, are, who say that they have awakened. Some of them even use the word enlightenment, that they have realized their true nature. They've had some kind of non-dual realization. Many people say that it's an abiding awakening, that it doesn't come and go anymore, they know who they are. Many of those turn around and, and say to others, give up the search, you know, you are that, this is all there is, you don't need to do anything. And so one might ask, why am I about to interview a guy who doesn't claim any of that, who has written a biography of another guy who didn't claim any of that. <laughs> so maybe that's, that's my first question for you, Dana. <laughs> uh, is that a question? Is that the question it you're asking? It kind of is, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. why are we having this conversation? You know, who... Thank you for inviting me on your program, but now you're asking me to justify my existence. Here. <laughs> All yeah, right. People might say, well, who's, who's Houston Smith, and what's the big deal? And he didn't even claim to be enlightened. So why are we making such a fuss over him? And I mean no disrespect to Houston Smith, because I've thoroughly enjoyed your book, and I know some answers to that question, but I'd like to see what you would say, because I bet you that yeah. some people are going to ask that. 
Well, I think, you know, the answer is a simple one for both Houston and I, and that is that both of us are academics in the sense that we, you know, write work for academic journals and teach at the college level and have clearly read too many books. And <laughs> that we're trying to defend the non-dual experience, that we're trying to, both of us have had careers in which we've tried to legitimate the validity of non-dual experience and mystical states of consciousness and uh, where for so long Western academics were really saying there are only three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and sleeping, and everything else is just woo-woo and uh, BS and needs to be thrown in the circular file, then there are some of us who have had some of those experiences and um, who want to take them seriously. So I would say that's, uh, that's really the reason. And I would also say that you and Houston both are not only academics, but you have been experientially motivated all of your lives. You know, you've ardently sought that which you have also, uh, it, you have ardently sought the experience of that which you have also attempted to understand and articulate. Exactly, exactly. So it's not a dry academic sort of thing. People say to me, you know, stop thinking about it, stop reading books, this and that. All that can ju just keeps you hung up, prevents you in a way from settling into the actual experience. Personally, I don't find that. What, what would you answer to those who, who say that, you know, enlightenment or awakening is not an intellectual thing and you're just going to tangle yourself up in complications if you keep pursuing it in an intellectual vein? I think they mistakenly believe that somebody who has a very rich intellectual life is necessarily only living inside of that intellectual perspective. This past summer down in Miami, I gave a lecture at a conference on the Myers-Briggs personality types. And so some people process their life through their emotions, some people process their life through thinking, some people are extroverted, some people are introverted. People who predominantly or I should say, you know, their dominant is that they enjoy processing ideas, they enjoy working through intellectual arguments. It's a natural tendency for them. That doesn't mean that they don't have other aspects. I mean, I have feelings, I have a spiritual <laughs> life. And also, I think that it's also discounting a phenomenon I experience regularly, and I predict a lot of your listeners have, which is you're reading a book, and it's a book of philosophy, and you're reading about a particular idea, but all of a sudden that idea triggers a moment of, of profound insight. You have a moment of the sublime where the boundaries of consciousness expand and open, triggered by a particular thought. I think that's a very common experience for philosophers, actually. Also, we might add that in the Hindu tradition, you have jnanis, jnana yoga and so on, and you have towering intellects like Shankara and Sri Aurobindo and others who were extremely erudite and deep thinkers and you know, wrote very complex texts that took a great, great deal of intellectual clarity and experiential clarity to understand. And you have similar things in the Buddhist tradition. So if you respect those traditions, then you probably don't have a problem with those who are more intellectually inclined, following their natural tendency. That's right. If you look at, like, the debate traditions in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, I'm sure you've seen those videos of those guys where they're doing the hand slap and, uh, 
and arguing fine points of Buddhist philosophy with each other, they're not denying that there's an experiential level of knowledge, knowing, and insight. They're, you know, also processing on the level of philosophy. And as you say, the Upanishads, if you read the Upanishads, these were supposedly mostly cognitions of forest monks and gurus who were, you know, Upanishad means to sit down near, literally, because these uh, Shramana philosophers in the 6th century, 5th century BC were coming and sitting down near them in the forest ashrams. And um, a lot of what they had to say was extremely cerebral. Yeah, philosophical. Also, just playing off a point you made a minute ago, I mean, you said you have feelings. We have various faculties. Intellect is one, heart is another, body is another. None of these things are mutually exclusive or uh, really in conflict with one another, and, and there can be a holistic development in which transcendental experience and intellectual clarity and emotional fullness and all these things can blossom simultaneously. Yeah, you know, saying that, I'm not at the same time denying that there's such a thing as concept addiction yeah. and that people don't get caught up in their heads and get caught up in their philosophical truths. I mean, I think one of the things postmodern philosophy today has taught us is that maybe one of the primary values of a new philosophical way of looking at the world is simply that it freed us of the old philosophical way of looking at the world. <laughs> that we tend to be too dogmatic about any particular system and need some liberation from that. Yeah. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are four specific philosophical models that are considered authoritative doctrine. And what's interesting about those four is that they don't all really agree with each other very well. So on some level, the, the Tibetan Buddhists are saying, yes, these ideas have facility because they're fingers pointing at the moon. I'm sure you know that analogy, but they're not the moon. That experiential knowing is trumps all other. The first note I took when I was reading your book to ask you about Actually, I read a bunch of it before the SAND conference. I didn't take notes. And then after, then in the last couple of weeks, I started reading it again and, and started taking notes. So I may have missed some good stuff. But first note I took was that mm-hmm. 10 years at MIT didn't make a dent in strict materialism in Houston's attempt to bring science and religion closer together. He fought against what was called scientism, which you can define for us for a minute. Well, basically that only that which science can measure is valid. And he, he was always up against this academic disdain for mysticism and metaphysics. So I, I bring that point up because we were just talking about whether intellectualism can be a, a, a barrier to spiritual experience. And I think it, it can be if it's pursued exclusively without respect for and pursuit of that experience. But if one wants to pursue that experience and is going about it in the right way, then, in my opinion, intellectual understanding is an aid and not a handicap. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. I mean, you're exactly right. I, I think that the problem Houston encountered, which is a problem that I still encounter at academic conferences, is a dogmatic materialism. That there is a dogmatic materialism that we bump into. Dawkins is a good example of that. I think Sam Harris is a good example of that today. Several other people who, uh, you know, that's what was going on at MIT, is this sort of exclusive focus on quantification, 
because you can't quantify these experiences perfectly, though neurophysiology is lending strong, you know, evidential support, um, then, okay, it doesn't exist. If you can't quantify it, it doesn't exist. You know, <laughs> Russell said, what science can't prove, mankind can't know, which is a ridiculous statement if you think about it, because the first thing I would say as a philosopher would be, Oh, can you scientifically prove that statement? Yeah. <laughs> okay, how would you go about scientifically proving the statement that only those things which can be scientifically proven to be true are true? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, it's arrogant because it assumes that, that science is the ultimate means of gaining knowledge. And, you know, science is a relatively new thing. And who knows what we might have a thousand years from now or two thousand years or what they might have had a thousand or two thousand years before that we actually don't per, you know, properly understand. So it's just sort of this uh, self-important attitude, in my opinion, where you know, we think that we're the latest, greatest and, and uh, that you know, we're kind of at the, the pinnacle of, of human civilization and, no one, and that our tools are the only tools that are worthy of respect. Exactly, yeah. exactly. We'll keep coming back to Houston. I've got plenty of notes here that are going to tie Houston into this. But I okay. suppose he would have found a lot of these points we're making very interesting and very germane to you know the things that you know he, he spent his time on. So it's not like we're straying away from him. But uh. no, not at all. If you look at Beyond the Postmodern Mind by Houston Smith, you see a lot of his arguments against scientism. You know, first of all, he was a defender of religion, so people say. Well, look how dangerous religion is. Look at all the wars that have been fought over religion. Look at uh, what's happening in Syria today with ISIS. Uh, by the way, I don't like calling them the Islamic State. I feel like to call them the Islamic State is letting them decide what an Islamic State should be. Mm. And the vast majority of Muslims wouldn't agree with their idea of Islam. The vast majority of Muslims would see them as heretics. So we should call them the heretic state or the... <laughs> the loser state. I don't know. Why let them determine the terms of, you know, nomenclature or whatever you want yeah, to call it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, anyway, just, to, just getting back to my thought, which is to say that religion is dangerous and we need to get rid of religion. Houston Smith pointed out that in the 20th century, the most dangerous ideologies were Nazi Germany, were Mao's communism, were Stalin's communism. And so those were secular ideologies. And Houston would say, okay, dogmatic ideology is the problem. Fanatical ideology is the problem, not religion per se. Houston would admit that religion has made mistakes, but he agreed with Ramakrishna who once said, religion is like a cow, it, it kicks, but it also gives milk. That would be his way of looking at that. Yeah, there are some interesting things discussed in your book about Houston's attempts to reconcile his understanding of religions in their separateness and also their unity with his own experience which you know he enlivened through various means zen and psychedelics and various mm -hmm. other things and one one thing i found particularly interesting was he caught on with some philosopher it was it might have been shuan in this case who helped him reconcile this by talking about how people are naturally either esoterics or exoterics. And I'm sure that's a broad generalization and there's some crossover and mixture. But the exoterics, those who are sort of, have a sort of outwardly, outward orientation, 
kind of need the structure and discipline and ritual and, and rules and, and regulations that religions provide. And, and so it's not like that stuff is necessarily an obstacle to realization. It, it serves a purpose for those who need it. And I, I, as I read your book, I got a sense that that was a real aha for, for Houston. And it also helped to contradict people like Huxley, who felt like religion had become so degenerated and corrupt that it was really an obstacle to enlightenment. Yeah, Huxley was definitely not a pro-religion person in, in any sense of that. He really did feel like, you know, he totally felt that spiritual experiences were legitimate. He was an endorser of the non-dual experience. He called it the unitive experience. Uh, whereas Houston felt very uncomfortable with that, even though he was a disciple of Huxley and a close friend of his. He agreed with Huxley about this business of a perennial philosophy that uh, the mystics of the various religious traditions, wisdom traditions, they tended to break through into a very similar kind of consciousness. And when they would describe it, whether we're talking about the poetry of Rumi or the philosophy of Shankara, or the writings of the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart, that we see them saying very, very similar things, even between cultures that could never have known about each other. So Huxley was putting all of his attention there, where Houston was saying, okay, there is this esoteric level of religion, but there is also the exoteric level of religion in terms of ritual and custom you know, the various practices we associate with Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc. Two things there, two things. First of all, in the academic study of religion, many people will look at, well, what are the underlying structures of various religions, like, for instance, family structures and how they're shaped by the ideologies of religion. So social anthropologists would be doing that kind of work, for example. And there are people that look at the functions of those structures. So what are the functions of those structures? In other words, how do people find community and identity, for example, through a religion? I grew up in Down East Maine uh, in the Congregational Protestant Church. And I get a very warm and fuzzy feeling when I go home at Christmas and I'm with my family and we're in the church together. And uh, so again, community and identity are important functions of religion and there are others that we could cover. And so Houston felt like you're making a mistake all this when you say we just need to get rid of the exoteric level of religion. Yeah, we shouldn't be dogmatic about our particular communities and our particular identities and exclusive in that regard. But these are valuable functions for people. People derive a tremendous amount of purpose and meaning from those contexts. When I was writing the, the Houston Smith book, I was out in California, some interviews in the Bay Area, and I interviewed Phil Cousineau, who was a close friend of Joseph Campbell and one of his biographers. Great guy, Phil. Hi, Phil, if you hear this interview. And Phil said, uh, yeah, you know, Houston got that, and Huxley and Joseph Campbell really didn't. I mean, they were so far along in their particular progress spiritually, perhaps, that they could be lone scouts and go it alone. But um, he said, Janis Joplin used to say, I make love to 2,000 people every night, and then I go home alone. 
And uh, Cousineau said maybe if she had had more community that she would have lived past 26 or what, whatever the age was. 27. She, 27. So, she yeah, and Hendricks I mean, and Jim Morrison all died at 27. Okay, yeah, dangerous <laughs> age. I have a 27-year-old daughter. I'm going to give her a call this afternoon <laughs> tell her how much I love her. <laughs> uh, just, just tell her not to I'm do heroin. That, that, that uh, you know, getting back to Houston's view is that the exoteric uh, level of religion has a lot of values that um, sociologists can put a premium on, psychologists can put a premium on, whether intellectuals like Huxley, esoterics like Huxley do or not. And then, you know, Houston would also say Huxley was discounting that those are established trails up the spiritual mountain. That, you know, I know you meditate every day, Rick, and that meditation practice that you do, transcendental meditation, is in many ways just old wine and new bottles, as you know, that it's a traditional mantra japa, mantra repetition practice of the Shankara lineage and has been around for 11 centuries. So a lot of these practices, you know, Zen uh, meditation and uh, shamatha, Tibetan Buddhist practice, I have a lot of experience with. Uh, these aren't things that we should poo-poo. You know, you can bushwhack your way up the spiritual mountain, but, you know, to do some of these traditional practices can be very, very, very efficacious. Now, what people can do, and, uh, you know, if, if my coffee is making me blab too much, just pipe up here. <laughs> but what people can do is they can sacralize the trail. And I think we talked about that in our first interview together. They can confuse a means for an ends in itself. So they can say, oh, only my religion is a trail up the spiritual mountain. In fact, there isn't even a mountaintop. I'm making a mountaintop out of my trail, if you see what I mean. <laughs> that it's really about these practices. I'm sacralizing the practices themselves. And that's a danger. Well, for obvious reasons, I think it makes us myopic and, and, and blind to other possibilities. Yeah. Well, you and I were both TM teachers, as we know, and others may not know, but one of the ways in which we were indoctrinated in, in that training was that religions are sort of the, the somewhat degenerated remnants of the you know, coming on earth of a great sage, enlightened being such as Jesus or Buddha, who taught a fresh teaching and enlightened a lot of people in, in their presence. But then as time went on, you know, knowledge crumbled on the hard rocks of ignorance and things got distorted and diluted and so on and so forth and, until you know, we have what we have today in, in terms of the various religions. Marshy wasn't saying that we should do away with them all. He was saying if we can kind of bring in the transcendent, then we'll restore the original purpose of religions and will breathe life into existing religions. That's what Houston was very much trying to do, is to say, if we can reclaim the transcendent aspect of religion, then the religions become revitalized. And, uh, and that's a piece that he picked up from uh, Frith Jock Shuang, that that should be there. And I think, you know, that's part of what your work is about and my work is about is very often, I think, in our own culture, people are starving for the transcendent. They don't realize, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think on some subliminal level, because the transcendent is there, the human spirit is always longing for it, hoping to complete itself. I see with my students a lot of times a longing for what I call the transcendent. 
it's like there's a part of them inside that they can intuit is there, but they really don't have access to. When my nieces were reading the Harry Potter books and when they were reading the Twilight series about becoming a vampire, what I see in all of that, and other scholars have talked about it, is a longing for the transcendent. We don't want to be a muggle. We want to go to Hogwarts and we want to <laughs> learn to be magical beings. And I think that's what a place like Esalen is, for example, is a, is a Hogwarts for adults, mm-hmm. a place where people can go and learn how to make contact with, the, with the, that part of them that they profoundly long for. Yeah. I would go so far as to say that everybody in the world longs for the transcendent, that everything in creation longs for the transcendent, every dog, every mosquito. There's this sort of evolutionary trajectory that we're all following. And and I read this someplace in your book, I don't know who said it, but that any desire of any sort is a sort of a stepping stone to ultimate fulfillment in the divine ground, I think was the word used. Well, you know, I think, as I say, in our own culture, I'm surprised people haven't figured out that you're just not going to be able to keep going to the mall and find fulfillment, that <laughs> it isn't going to happen on the next trip. And at the same time, I'm not surprised, because if you look at the amount of propaganda for materialism that the average American mind is bombarded with on a regular basis, the ideology of keeping up with the Joneses, the ideology of you know dollar sign, equal sign, smiley face, money is going to do it. You're going to buy your way into some kind of profound happiness, even though we see in the United States the Life Satisfaction Index has gone down even as Americans' ability to buy has tripled. I mean, you live in Maine, right? And you're right next door to New Hampshire where they have this serious heroin epidemic, and maybe you've got it in Maine, too. We have it in Maine, too. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, to take an extreme example, People should realize, of course, that if you shoot heroin into your arm, it's going to wear off in a few hours, and and you're not going to be any better off. In fact, you're going to be worse off than you were before you did it. But people do it anyway because they don't see any... The quick fix is better than nothing, and, and they don't... I'm starting to give reasons for why they do it now. But it's like it's not uncommon, and that's an extreme example, for people to live their lives chasing the quick fix in whatever form because they don't know anything else that will provide them relief or fulfillment. So I guess maybe temporary relief is better than nothing. That's right. I mean, I think that's a part of it. I also think it makes a kind of logical sense. If you live in a society that reduces the purposes of human existence, you know, the telos, the goal of human experience to only physical comfort and pleasure, why not cut to the chase, man? <laughs> Shoot some physical comfort and pleasure in your arm. I mean, and uh, this is what I'm saying. And I think in in some ways there's a kind of logic to it. You know, that's why you and I are both interested in all this. Is there is some curative value for our society? Um, you know, as Jung and many others have argued uh, inside the discipline of psychology, that uh, people long for self-actualization, and if they don't have good social structures that cultivate that in them, then they flounder around, they flail around. Yeah. And, and seeing a lot of that today. Yeah, well, I know I certainly did a lot of floundering and flailing before I found this. 
a minute ago we were talking about you know the fact that religions do have value at least potentially and we've been talking about how people really long for the transcendent but the average person who goes to church every sunday for instance they hear some nice songs sung and they hear a talk a, you know a lecture a sermon there some little rituals and things like that but when i had to do that as a kid it was like the low point of my week my mother would drag me to church you know and it was like to- <laughs> totally boring i had no idea what was going on i hated doing it i would rather be outside playing baseball uh, because there was, you know, had no concept of any kind of transcendental reality, and, and nothing that I saw in, and I also went to congregational church, uh, was providing it. Um, so, I guess the question is, you know, if religions have this value, is the exoteric structure of religion sufficient value for the vast majority of people, or perhaps is the um, exodus from traditional churches? due to the fact that they aren't providing some kind of transcendent experience, and do they have the means of providing it, or would they have to sort of turn to other sources which have more or less specialized in providing it? For instance, you know, Thomas Merton went to India, and, and, and uh, you know, Father Keating learned TM and then kind of molded it into the centering prayer and perhaps found roots for the centering prayer in in Christian tradition. And Houston, of course, tried all kinds of things looking for the transcendent. So to summarize that question, can religions on their own, as they are, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and provide the deeper experience that people are inherently craving, or do they need kind of some cross-fertilization from other traditions which have been a little bit more clear about that deeper reality in order to resuscitate themselves? Yes. That was a whole family of questions. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's so many things to say in there. Uh, Houston was born in 1919 in China into a family of Methodist missionaries. And so he grew up with his only view of foreigners, and he was a foreigner, being that they were profoundly religious people you know, what came across to Houston is that we're in good hands, that God loves us uh, and all of this. And what came through to him from his mother was that he should respect the indigenous religions of China. She also was born and raised in China and could speak fluent Mandarin as can Houston Smith. And so she had a, a lot of respect for Chinese culture and from childhood made sure that her three sons learned how to speak Chinese. So there was a lot of Which respect. is more than you can say for a lot of missionaries who go around the world. Well, that's right. That's <laughs> right. His father was definitely a, an old school, express your Christianity primarily through Christian love. Well, for instance, his father, when he got to uh, Suzhou, where their mission was, the first thing he built was a hospital. And the second thing he built was a school. And the third thing he built was a church. So, I mean, it shows his priorities in terms of how he expressed his Christianity. But what I wanted to get to relative to your family of questions was that (laughs) Houston came to believe something that maybe you experienced when you were in church, which was that he respected it tremendously and he saw some magic happening for his father and for his mother and for one of his brothers, but there was something missing for him. And what he came to theorize was that 
as the Bhagavad Gita says, there are basically spiritual personality types that not everybody is drawn to the path of devotion, uh, bhakti. And that was really his parents' path. It was about devotion to God, devotion to God in the form of Jesus. It didn't ring so strongly true for Houston that uh, he realized there were other paths up the spiritual mountain. You know, like sometimes my students will say that they're not religious at all or they're not spiritual at all, and yet I see them canvassing all the time for the Sierra Club. And I will say, well, you know, that's a kind of spirituality. You love nature and believe that nature should be preserved. And so you're very active in going around and trying to wake people up about global warming and these sorts of things. Well, Houston Smith would say that's karma yoga as described in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, that when we're in service to humanity and the planets and other beings on it through our actions, Red Cross volunteers in uh, the third world, that that is a spiritual path. So, you know, there are those four major spiritual paths described in the Bhagavad Gita. And Houston will say, not every spiritual path is for everybody. Not everybody finds their true home relative to their own spiritual personality type and the tradition they were born into. That's one answer to all that family of questions. <laughs> You kind of found that, it sounds like, Rick. I mean, that it wasn't the uh, Congo church, as we used to call it, that uh, really worked for your own self-actualization, that it no. was. I mean, as soon as I learned to meditate, my attitude was, oh, so this is what that whole thing is about. This is what Jesus was talking about, this experience. And then it began to make more sense, and I began to have more respect for it. Not that I actually felt like going to church any, any more than I, you know, because I had my own sort of church by, by meditating. I didn't feel the need so much for the outer structure of that, anyway, the Christian outer structure. Although, as you know, many, many people do. They'll go off on a spiritual quest, and then they'll come back to Judaism or Christianity or something and integrate that into the, the tradition they grew up with. That's a very common thing. Very common. They become Hindus or Bujus yeah. or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, those esoteric payoffs of religion, as I say, community, identity, etc., those are strong attractors for, for some personality types. And yeah. so they I mean, here in Fairfield, the, the, the synagogue is very active. And, um, you know, all these sort of people who have been meditating for many decades are all just enthusiastic participants in it. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's a meaningful thing for them. So. Yeah. So just to make sure we've covered it, you've mentioned it, and most people understand it, but it would be worth defining perennial philosophy briefly, because we may refer to it elsewhere in the interview, and it's a good thing for people, it's a good term for people to understand. It's simple and straightforward in some ways, uh, but to, to put it in a historical narrative, in 1937, Aldous Huxley sailed on the Normandy from England to New York, and when he was traveling with his wife, he was also traveling with a guy named Gerald Hurd, who's a very interesting figure, and take a while to really explain Gerald, but he's in the book. Gerald was interested in mysticism and uh, got Huxley interested in mysticism and said, hey, we're going to California. We're going to drive to California from New York, so we might want to study with a Swami who's out there, a Swami of the Vedanta Society named Swami Prabhavananda. And um, they did that. 
And when they got to California, they were studying with Swami Prabhavananda. He was teaching them a Hindu meditation practice. Inside of his teaching was this idea of a Sanatana Dharma, an eternal religion, that um, we live in the world and implicit to our relationship to the world, there is a natural spirituality, that the cosmos has a spiritual dimension broadly defined, and that we must have a, a natural relationship to a spirituality. So people in all traditions, as they self-actualize, move further into their awakening, wake up into the reality of this singular spiritual tradition. Anyway, Huxley, you know, having an IQ somewhere north of 200 <laughs> and uh, an encyclopedic memory, one time for the New York Times, he reviewed the most recent edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. His friends, you know, Edwin Hubble, whom the Space Telescope is named after, Igor Stravinsky and others said he never forgot any of it. He remembered the entire thing. So here's this enormous intelligence, this enormous, incredible memory and access to knowledge. And uh, he said, well, you know, to Swami Prabhavananda's idea of an eternal religion, let's find out. So what he did is he read all of the mystical literature he could get his hands on from the established traditions. And after a couple of years of that, he said, thumbs up. Yeah, you know, there, there does seem to be a certain pattern of ideas that we find cutting across the mystical literature and he reduced those to what he called the minimum working hypothesis. And so he's saying that all mystics are basically or fundamentally making four points. One is that there is, in addition to this physical universe, a transcendent aspect beyond time and space, that all mystics are saying this. There's an absolute. And this absolute transcendent reality, point number two, is also imminent as physical reality. So physical reality is not in a dual, a dialectical relationship to the transcendent where there are these two things, but in a relationship where the transcendent, the absolute that's beyond time and space, is fountaining up into, manifesting up into this realm of time and space. And the analogy I use for that is it's like an ocean, the one ocean uh, manifests at the surface level as waves. And yeah. the waves are multiple and many, but they're not anything separate from ocean itself. Right. And so just, that, to, just to throw in a comment on that, I mean, if you... This is the theme of my my talk at Sanders. If you just if you actually look closely at the physical creation and even what science has told us about it, the the trend the, the sort of the divine intelligence is staring you in the face. You know, I mean, it's just there's so many qualities that the transcendent is said to have, which you can actually see revealed in the manifest universe if you know how to look. Great, right? So you know, Huxley would totally agree with that. And then uh, the third point of the minimum working hypothesis is that human beings can actually experience reality that way. That one aspect of relative reality, the world that is inside time and space, is you. 
and another aspect of it is me. But since all of physical reality is fountaining up out of this absolute, this transcendent, then in some sense you and I must have a transcendent bottom to us, if you will, or a, a transcendent aspect. And so human beings, the mystics claim, can actually experience that transcendent aspect that they share in common with all of reality. Then the fourth and last aspect of the minimum working hypothesis is that not only can we experience it, reality that way, that's what we're here to do, that that's the purpose of human existence, they say, is to wake up to every aspect of what we are or I should say, the most fundamental aspect of what we are. So when our relative consciousness is experiencing that, what Meister Eckhart called uh, the divine ground of being, that transcendent aspect, that's what uh, Aldous Huxley and Houston Smith term the unitive experience. Nice. Non-dual nice. experience, you and I would call it. And related to points three and four, there was someone in your book whom you quoted and whom, whom Houston found exciting who proposed that the very mechanics of creation are, are such that more and more sophisticated complex forms are evolved for the very purpose of the divine ground experiencing itself, as if it sort of continues to create forms which are more and more capable of uh, enabling it to know itself as a living experience. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, you know, I've been reading a lot of Friedrich Schelling lately, the uh, 19th century German idealist philosopher. I recommend Schelling, by the way, to, to folks out there that are watching this podcast. And Schelling believed in, see if I can unpack this for you very quickly, there's the idea of pantheism, that God is in all things. There's, you know, in animistic religions, there are gods of mountains, like Mount Fuji in Japan. There are gods of trees and, and rivers, naiads and dryads, that, you know, here a god, there a god, everywhere a god, god, that <laughs> uh, god is everywhere. And then there's a concept in the academic study of religion, panentheism, which is saying not only is god in everything, but everything is god. Back to the analogy of the ocean and the waves, that if God is the ocean, then the waves are little discrete moments of God. You know, Rumi once said, you're not a drop in the ocean, you're the ocean in a drop. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, that plays into this. But then there's what Schelling and others have, it's a viewpoint that's termed evolutionary panentheism. And what that means is that in the physical, on the physical level of being, reality, later on, you know, uh, people like Thierry de Chardin, post-Darwin, are saying, you know, when we look at physical evolution of species from a Darwin perspective, then evolutionary panentheists would say what nature is trying to do, and, and nature here is basically synonymous with God in this particular instance, is evolve beings that have a nervous system complex enough to wake up to the reality that uh, they are the ocean, that the waves are trying to realize their oceanness. And in a sense, well, not in a sense, in actuality, for Schelling, this was the idea that where, where God's eyes and God's fingertips on some level that 
right now as you're sitting here and you're an active consciousness, you are, you know, an aspect of the rays of God's light that are active in the world. And to act in a most enlightened fashion, we need to fully self-actualize, plug into the, the source of our awakening, which is, you know, God slash the absolute slash the ocean. Well, from now on, if anybody asks me what my religion is, I'm going to tell them I'm an evolutionary panentheist. Okay, good. <laughs> that's good. Because <laughs> that resonates. That's like totally uh, rings a bell for me. <laughs> well, you know, for me, that's very descriptive. And you know what's wonderful about it socially is it's confusing enough that they won't get mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> they'll go to talk, talk with somebody else at the cocktail party you know? yeah they'll kind of run away <laughs> oh no doubt that's, that's my tactic with uh, fundamentalists if they call I start talking astronomy with them and, and going into the size of the galaxy and the size of the universe and you know if Jesus lived only 33 years was he on tour and going to all these other undoubtedly inhabited places and they say oh, well, nice talking to you I'll talk to you <laughs> Yeah, I bet they really enjoy you for that. <laughs> you know, I thought of something to say relative to the uh, four points about the iterative knowledge. Okay, go for it. Well, it, you know, one thing I think that's important is that uh, when Houston takes up that piece of, of esoteric religion, one thing he often will point out is that we can say, okay, Rumi has these mystical experiences, Shankara has them, etc., etc., etc. Buddhists have, you know, uh, luminaries like uh, Kshobhya or somebody. Uh, but what about the average person? And he believes, and I believe too, that all people have these experiences. They may not know necessarily how to interpret them relative to what we're talking about today, but the experience is there and they, may, they, they place a value on it. Gallup has done surveys about this sort of thing, and large percentages of the, right? of the population claim to have had mystical experiences of some sort. You know, I did a workshop down at uh, my friend Alex Gray, the painter Alex Gray's facility down in New York last spring. And what I started out with was asking the audience, tell me about your most sublime experience. Tell me about something that's become a touchstone that you keep coming back to as valuable in your life. And uh, one woman raised her hand and she said, I was walking down the street in New York City one day and I felt like every person I saw, I knew them. I knew them in some profound, intimate way that I felt the sense of incredible interconnection. Even making eye contact, she said she felt like she was them and they were her and she couldn't understand what was happening to her. But that experience periodically, with some regularity, keeps floating up in her mind as significant. And then somebody else said, you know, just the other day I was walking down the beach with my dog and I fell into this experience of timelessness where I, I have a busy, high-powered job, but I didn't care about it. I didn't care about the future. I didn't care about the past. I just felt like everything was okay and I can't explain it. It just was a sense of the eternal and timeless. Well, you know, Houston would say, based on Huxley's minimum working hypothesis, that your own eternality was floating forward into your purview, that that transcendent level of your own being 
was coming into focus, coming into your experience. And so you were feeling your own timelessness in that timeless experience. And for the woman, you, you were feeling that level of being where everything is profoundly interconnected because on the most profoundest level, it's just a oneness. Yeah. So, you know, I think people regularly have these experiences. In a lot of cases, they dismiss them because they have, uh, you know, what they think are more important duties to perform. But, you know, we shouldn't create a view that only, you know, some great luminary standing on a mountain with a 50,000 watt aura, <laughs> rainbow colored aura, are having these experiences. I mean, I think, quite frankly, children have them regularly. Oh, yeah. Well, if points three and four of the perennial philosophy are true, then the surprising thing would be if people didn't have these experiences, you know, because if the universe is nothing but the divine and just appearing as form, then the, we're just sort of swimming in the ocean of the divine. There's that old saying, you know, the absurdity of a fish being thirsty in water when, and looking for the water when it's completely in, in the water. So here we are, we're part Absurd of... fish. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's not surprising, I think, that spiritual experiences are relatively commonplace. And in my experience doing this show, they're becoming more so all the time. They're, it just seems to be spreading like an epidemic. Uh, and people are waking up whether or not they're even looking for it. And... Um, those who are looking forward to waking up more readily and or having deep deep awakenings or profound experiences more readily so something something good is happening i think so too i mean i think one uh part of your program that's so interesting to me as you talk to all the people having these experiences is that um as the experience proliferates which i of course hope it does it's related to what i was saying about only a select few people say, oh, I'm going to put these people up on a pedestal because they're so unusual, that if it is happening more common and if people recognize these experiences in their own lives, then it will... Democratize? Yeah, democratize. It takes away some of the hierarchical power structures that we saw when uh, Asian religions really first immigrated on large scale into the United States in the 1960s. You know, in the same way that Huxley would have argued, yeah, somebody has this profound experience, the Buddha, Jesus, whoever, then as structures come up, then people who are very interested in power and control are always attracted to structure. Uh, we're seeing that in the presidential election right now. I'm not going to name names, but people can guess who I'm talking about. So as people are attracted to those structures, then they start to create dogmas and they start to become gatekeepers in religions that really, from Huxley's perspective, were preventing awakening more than creating it. And I think sometimes when you look at the power structures of the guru paradigms of the 1960s, even after 30 and 40 years of practice and meditation, those gurus were very stingy on handing out any kind of authority to their followers. Oh, I'll still be the great one who tells you what to do and when to do it. And uh, you see what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Is I mean, it made them nervous. I mean, Deepak Chopra got a little bit too authoritative or respected in his own right around Marishi, and, and he and Marishi had to have a parting of the ways. Another friend of mine 
started to think that way and, and feel that way. And, and, you know, Maharishi had this little meeting with him and he said, you know, I really love you and, and you've been a really good close student, but you're becoming too independent in your thinking, you know, so I have to let you go. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I just happened to know those stories because I was in the TM movement, but I, I bet you there are similar stories in many other groups. You know, I had an experience of it the other day. I have to tell you really quickly. I was in the uh, Newark airport on my way back from visiting my mother in uh, Florida. And I'm walking through the airport, and here is this uh, guy from India. And he's got on, you know, sadhu orange, and he's got a tilak on his forehead that identifies him as a Vaishnava and long black hair. And I never miss an opportunity to speak Hindi. So I walked up to him and I said, where are you from? And so he lights up because somebody speaks his language and we start having this conversation. Well, a moment or two later, several of his Western devotees in Krishna garb are now surrounding us. And in those moments, I could see his demeanor and attitude change that there was a certain discomfort they felt that they didn't know what we were talking about and that um, there was an energy toward me. How can you just chit chat with the great one? And so he also started to buy into it a little bit, you know, where before he was very congenial. I could see him sort of shift into I'm the great one mode, mm. even if it's conversation. And so, you know, these structures are, are there. Well, there's a mutual way. feedback loop with that kind of thing. You know, the, the, the students feed the teacher, the teacher feeds the students, and they carry on like that. Exactly. I mean, they feed the dynamic. Do they feed themselves in a larger way? I mean, the answer's got to be yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, for Americans, where there's this idea of kind of the sovereignty of individual choice, or there used to be, uh, you know, Phil Goldberg, our friend, said in American Beta, there was such a, an interesting irony in the 1960s of the most anti-authoritarian generation in the history of the United States surrendering all authority to gurus. I mean, what a, what a funny dynamic that was. But, you know, once burned, twice shy. And I think increasingly, and increasingly because of what you say, Rick, about the experiencing being recognized more often, and more people having a richer, fuller version of the experience that we're seeing a more, uh, yeah, democratization of the unitive experience. I hope so. I hope we are. I, I swear we're going to get back to Houston, but all this relates to him. But we're going to back, get back to him specifically. But you said an interesting thing in an email exchange we had recently that um, no problem with gurus, but you should have four or five of them because when they disagree with each other, as they inevitably will, then you'll kind of be thrown back upon your own understanding or your own resources. Well, you, you know, you'll, you'll realize that you're going to have to make up your own mind. Ultimately, it's your journey. Ultimately, it's your journey. And, you know, you can't always ask the guru what you think or what you should think. And when you're dealing with four or five, then they will inevitably disagree with each other. So you'll have, I mean, you know, you recently interviewed Andrew Harvey. Andrew and I have talked about this, that when he split from Mother Mira, that was a great moment of, of insight and self-actualization for him, is that he never, ever for a moment doubted that she was continuously having the non-dual experience. But he disagreed with her in certain ways about how that should be interpreted and, um, and what its consequences are for social life. 
Yeah. Which leads me right into a quote from your book. You said, I hope I'm quoting you properly here. Well, I guess Houston was saying this, and I, I tended to disagree with it, but unity can't be maintained continuously. Even if a person were continuously experiencing the divine ground, which I believe they can be, he or she would still be a person with limitations. Spiritual maturity is coming to terms with both our timeless and temporal natures. We are infinitely betterable, but never perfectible. Mm. Do you want to say something more nope, about that? No, nope, you go ahead. Well, two things that come to my mind. First of all, one doesn't have to live in Paris all the time to know that Paris is there. If you've ever been to Paris, then you know what Paris is on some level, and you can't deny its existence because you experienced it. So people who are watching right now or will watch who've had this experience, don't deny it. There it is. It's part of you. It's informing your life like the person who had the timelessness walking on the beach with their dog. Let it keep uh, informing you. And for those of you who are having a continuous non-dual experience, Houston would say, and I would agree with him, it's important to face the fact that you also have temporal aspects to what you are. That you, you're intelligent, but you're not... <laughs> probably, I can safely say, anybody listening to this is not as intelligent as was Aldous Huxley in that one spectrum of, you know, IQ kind of intelligence, which no. is... A, Nor are they as good a piano player as Chopin or as good a baseball player as Babe Ruth. Or There are always going to be limitations on the relative level. Exactly, exactly. And even in terms of the incorporation of the non-dual experience into one's life, that the experience can always be there. But is it informing all levels of your emotional maturity? Is it informing all levels of your social maturity? That's a big project that, that goes on and on. Um, let me ask you a short forward question. Why is Houston important? He's very important for several reasons. You know, the, the, the most important of the important reasons, I would say, is that he was the first scholar in modern times to take religion seriously as having real value that in the 1940s and 50s, when he was first uh, finishing grad school and then teaching, it was typical in colleges and universities that um, you really could only teach religion if you hated it. That uh, modernists, you know, agreed with Marx that religion was the opiate of the masses or with Freud that religion is based on an infantile model where we, uh, we realize there are things our actual parents aren't capable of doing, and so we reach out to cosmic parents to take care of us uh, and pray to and ask help from. And and it's, it's so, also interesting to throw in there that Freud thought that the transcendent or the experiences of it were just some regression to the security of the womb or nursing or something, that he, he didn't take that seriously. But anyway, keep going. That, that's right. He called it the oceanic experience, that it's what we experience in the womb. Our first conscious experiences, we, we experience no separation between self and other. And so we long to go back into the womb, that idea. And so, you know, uh, Freud said, hey, stop going to church, you know, Start coming to see me and get some therapy around this. So anyway, you know, agreeing with modernists, a lot of academics said, it's the 1940s, man, it's the 1950s. Let's outgrow this religion mumbo-jumbo. 
let go of our superstitions and march forward. And so along comes Houston Smith and he says, well, how come music professors get to love music? And how come art professors, art history professors get to love art, but I as a teacher of religion can't love religion and point out its good aspects. I mean, you know, there's been bad music. You know, music professors aren't obligated to only play the bad music. And so Houston was really one of the first people to say, instead of evaluating religion all the time and judging religion all the time, pejoratively, how about if I simply describe religion? What if I just say, okay, in my course, you know, he was first teaching primarily at MIT, taught in Denver before that, well, Washington University even earlier, why don't I describe the religions in such a way that proponents of those religions would at least recognize them? Why don't we start there? And so that's what he did, you know, when he wrote The Religions of uh, Man back in the 1950s, 1958 it came out, then people who read that book felt almost like he might be some kind of weird schizophrenic guy because as they changed chapters, it was almost like he changed religions, that he became an apologist for this new faith he was describing in every new chapter. You know, as I read your book, I got the sense that it was Houston's humility that enabled him to do that, that he didn't have a particular axe to grind or viewpoint to defend or impose upon others, and that made him capable of appreciating all the different traditions and religions because it, it made him capable of approaching them respectfully. I think that's exactly right. I think yeah. that's exactly right. In my experience, has always been a very humble person. He himself says that he never had any great, profound, new insights that he really has been, you know, his genius, if he has one, is really an intuitive ability to, to hear the truth in other people's theories and then become a kind of champion of a various uh, set of theories that over his life have rung most true. So that in solution. itself is pretty significant, because if you think about it, just about every member of a religious group or spiritual group has either very overtly or at least subliminally this attitude that ours is the best thing and that therefore everything else is inferior to some degree. You know, many wouldn't say it, some do say it and pound it into others, but uh, you know, there's just sort of this attitude and you get the sense that Houston was really free of that and just approached everything with a kind of a childlike openness. I think that's exactly right. You know, two thoughts that come to my mind. One is when I interviewed Deepak Chopra for the book, he said that he had read Houston Smith's The Religions of Man, now the world's religions, which is still in print, what, 57 years later. He had been amazed by it. As a 14-year-old boy in Delhi, he read the book and shared it with his father, Arvind Sharma, another Hindu academic told me that when his father read the book, also in Delhi, he said, wow, this guy is understanding my religion even better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there, there was that uh, deep desire to present the religions, describe the religions in a way that was authentic and in a way that their followers would recognize. I'll go through some more of my notes here. here. I want to sort of trace through Houston's life quickly in terms of the various spiritual paths that he uh, delved into. Okay. 
and that'll sort of give us a better sense of the man and what kind of experiences he went through. I'm torn between asking you all these other questions. And, well, you know, one thing that one thing that, and it relates to what we've just been talking about. The reason he was so well able to describe these religions is that um, he apprenticed himself out to proponents of the religions. He said, "Okay, let me read their sacred texts. Let me read what their apologists say, and let me apprentice myself with swamis." Or rabbis, or Sufi masters, or, Alas, or yeah, yeah, and so he did that. In in some cases, like he studied with uh, Swami Sat Prakashananda, another uh, monk of the Ramakrishna order, for ten years. He studied Zen Buddhism with D.T. Suzuki for ten years. He went to uh, Japan to study Zen Buddhism at Neosinji. Yeah, there was this point in the book where he was in this Zen monastery on a retreat, and for like eight hours a day he had to sit in lotus or some such position, contemplating, if so-and-so says that a dog doesn't have Buddha nature, but such-and-such says that even a blade of grass has Buddha nature, (laughs) how do you reconcile this? He had to think about that for eight hours a day or something, in pain because of his sitting (laughs) position. And I thought, God, what an arduous path. I could never have done anything like that. Well, there's lots to say about that, but I mean, it does show his commitment. His determination, yeah. Extraordinary, yeah. And his humility in that he really just wanted to get it right in terms of each one of those descriptions, that that part of it. Yeah, so there was Hinduism, the Swami Satprakashananda, there was his serious application to Zen practice, and uh, perhaps you might want to say a little bit more about that, but then... He found himself in Cambridge teaching at MIT, and he ran into Timothy Leary. And he ran into Timothy Leary. And so you hold that thought, because my other thought just came back. And okay. I you know, Houston felt like when he uh, was studying each one of these religions, that this esoteric aspect of religion kept coming up in his experience. That... You know, perhaps partially because he was looking through that Huxleyan lens of the minimum working hypothesis, but that as he did apprentice in each one of these traditions, then he kept feeling like, wow, there's something to this. He didn't report it very often in his early writing, but on the experiential level, he could see those as viable pathways, you know, into... Uh, non-dual experience. I think Ramakrishna did something similar, didn't he, where he kind of like, even post-awakening, he, whatever awakening is, he applied himself to various spiritual traditions and went through all their rituals and paths in order to kind of like climb the mountain from that angle and then from that angle. Yeah, I mean, I think there are several people that that have done that, but uh, I would agree that Ramakrishna was one. So then Timothy Leary, and, th- and that's a fun story in, in ways. When I wrote the original manuscript for the book, the editor said, wow, you spend a lot of time talking about Houston's interaction with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. You've got to cut this down somewhat because it's a, a major part of the story. And I found that I could only cut it down so far because it was so, not only just so darn much fun to talk about, but there was so much relevant information in there relative to not only Houston's journey, but the journey of a lot of people in our age group who lived through the 60s and experimented with psychedelics and all that. So 
Huxley had written The Doors of Perception back in uh, 1954, 1955, and it covered his experiences with Mescon. And what had happened was there was a man named Humphrey Osman up in Saskatchewan who was a psychiatrist and he was working with mental patients and they were using uh, mescaline as part of a treatment program. Well, those, those people started to report that they were having what seemed like mystical experiences. Humphrey Osmond didn't know anything about mysticism, but he had read Aldous Huxley's book, The Perennial Philosophy, 1945, in which he had talked about this minimum working hypothesis and this pattern of experiences that cut across the mystical traditions. So Osmond said, hey, maybe Aldous Huxley would, would be able to make sense of my patient's experience. So he sent some letters to Aldous and they started a correspondence. Aldous said, maybe I would recognize it as valid mystical experience or not if I tried it. Well, it wasn't against the law, and Osmond was coming to a professional conference in Los Angeles where Aldous was living, and so he brought some mescaline with him. And so Aldous Huxley tried mescaline, 1954. And, uh, you know, to use a euphemism from my generation, he broke on through to the other side. <laughs> yeah, he definitely had a mind-blowing experience. He felt like for the first time he had really had a profound experience of non-dual consciousness, of the beatific vision. And uh, that's what he wrote about in The Doors of Perception. Okay, fast forward almost 10 years. It's interesting, uh, just as a side note, that as Huxley was dying, as he died, he had his wife inject him with LSD because he wanted to so go out with full consciousness of what, what, you know, of the deeper dimensions. Yeah, you know, I talked with Laura, his wife, about that. I mean, um, she injected him twice, actually. Mm. And Timothy Leary had brought the substance to them while they were there. So, I mean, I've always thought, what an extraordinary experience to go directly from waking state consciousness to dead, you know, not, not from an opiated stupor like, like most people experience but from not only waking state consciousness, but a psychedelic experience of melting into the absolute quite, uh, I mean, you have to admire the courage, if nothing else. You yeah. Know? Incredible. Uh, yeah. But anyway, what happened was Timothy Leary, now we're talking about Timothy Leary almost 10 years later, had come to Harvard and was a very well-respected uh, psychologist at that time. He had a book out at that time on uh, human personality that was basically the book and that's why they brought him to Harvard. Well he had an experience on psilocybin down in Mexico I think in Zihuatanejo but I'm not sure. He said he learned more about psychology in four hours on this substance than he had learned in his entire PhD program. Well anyway uh, he wanted to create a research program at Harvard using psilocybin, which eventually became called the Harvard Psychedelic Project. And again, it wasn't illegal at that time. Well, in the same way, people who were being given the substance, volunteers who were being given the substance, they had to fill out these elaborate questionnaires afterward. They seemed to be describing mystical experiences. So Leary got a hold of Huxley. He said, what do you think? 
Huxley said, I don't have time to, to work on this right now. But one of my very close friends, Houston Smith, is teaching right there in your area at MIT. You're at Harvard. He's at MIT. Why don't you ask him? He, he's got some real you know, expertise in this area. So Timothy Leary got a hold of Houston and said, would you look at these reports, these questionnaires? And so that's exactly what happened. Mm. Houston looked at them was inspired by them and uh, went the experiential route that Huxley had gone. He got Timothy Leary to give him some psilocybin. It's interesting and sad to consider the direction that Leary's life went in. There's a quote here from Houston, I believe. He said, drugs appear to be able to induce religious experiences. It is less evident that they can produce religious lives. And he he talked about traits over states. And then there's Alan Watts, you know, when you receive the message, hang up the phone. Perhaps an interesting lesson for everyone to see how Timothy Leary became increasingly unbalanced as he took more and more drugs and began experimenting with a greater variety of drugs and greater quantities of drugs and all sorts of things. Uh, I think there's a cautionary note here. Since we're talking about hallucinogens in a rather a way that might almost seem to recommend them, there's a cautionary note that um, it's not something that one necessarily has to do or should do or anything else. It's something that these guys did and that there's other methods, I would say. I mean, you and, yeah, I, both, you you and I both did them and they were eye-openers, but hopefully we hung up the phone. Well, you know, you know, on the should we hang up the phone, one inconsistency that I've heard in that message from Houston Smith is that uh, when he talks about psychedelic use in America, he often says, once you get the message, hang up the phone. And yet at the same time, he became a great champion of the Native American church, which uses peyote as their sacrament. And they continue to use it as a sacrament throughout life. In some ways, I see that as a kind of disconnect in his message. And I didn't get to this chapter in the book yet, but there's a a peyote chapter later on, towards much later in his his life, peyote and Mazatlan. So you can't just sort of generalize anything, but... um, (laughs) But, you know, I totally agree with you, Rick, on uh, that Houston is saying, okay, Tim, you're encouraging all these young people to take psychedelics and turn on, tune in, drop out. I don't agree with you. In 1966, there was a, a conference on psychedelics, an academic conference, primarily in Berkeley. And that was when Tim Leary, you know, gave his turn on, tune in, drop out message to the youth of America. And when it came Houston's time to speak, he was probably angrier than he's ever been in his life. He's a very kind, gentle person. And he saw that as totally irresponsible that, um, you know, you're 14 years old, you're 15 years old, and you're told to drop acid and reject, you know, the entire society and culture you've come from. He couldn't agree with that. So from Houston's perspective, when are you going to live a religious life? When, it, when is it going to be? When do these altered states of consciousness result in mature traits of behavior where you become more socially conscious? Well, at that time in 1966, the Vietnam War was heating up. Later on, Richard Nixon branded uh, Timothy Leary as, what, the most dangerous man in America or something like that. He was definitely giving voice to a particular theme that was pretty lively and 
in the American national consciousness, at least the sort of more rebellious wing of it, um, in opposition to the Vietnam War and to, you know, the the materialism uh, of the 50s that hadn't seemed to, you know, resonate with the exploratory, adventurous nature of life that young people were experiencing. So, I don't know, it's like he had a piece of the puzzle, but fine, it's, it's not good to just sort of swallow the status quo and, and just accept it because things do need to change, but there are constructive and destructive ways of changing. That's right. They can evolve. You, don't, you know, you can evolve society without necessarily launching a full-scale revolution. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the themes of the 60s. Do we tear everything down? And there were the weathermen and those who wanted to who started blowing up buildings and stuff. We're just going to tear it all down and then build who knows what out of the ashes. And then those who wanted to um, kind of just shift the direction and, and the, the momentum in, in a more evolutionary way. Right. And Houston was more that. Like, uh, what ended up happening was they... Eventually, as, as most people listening to this probably know, uh, Leary and Richard Alpert, who became Ramdas, were kicked out of Harvard, and they started an organization called the International Federation for Internal Freedom, IF-IF, and Houston once called it the iffiest organization <laughs> in the world, but he was a part of it, as was Alan Watts and uh, a whole group of really forward-thinking people that I respect, but when Leary made the new basis of it, Millbrook in upstate New York, they were launching all kinds of strange, crazy experiments up there that, um, you know, may have had value, but Houston felt uncomfortable with. Houston's daughters were teenagers then, and when he'd take them up there, there was a crazy scene and a lot of drugs, and he felt uncomfortable going. So he broke loose from Leary and Alpert at that time, and... Uh, and felt like, okay, you know, maybe this isn't my place. I'm an academic. I don't want to. I don't want to just scream and yell at other academics. I want to be a part of a discussion and and lead things in a new direction. I suppose one one more thing, just to touch upon, since we're on this topic, is that the current enthusiasm for ayahuasca and and so on. And I haven't been there and have no desire to go. But apparently, it's quite a scene down in Peru with all kinds of people showing up and. And just you know wanting to have this experience, it's it's sort of like a you know current uh, modern day Millbrook in a way I think where there's just a, not a lot of structure or um, necessarily oversight, and uh, there for every really legitimate um, place that you can go to have that experience, there are all kinds of people just opportunists trying to cash in on all the the, the moneyed Westerners coming down there. And I have friends, even people who volunteer and help that gap, who have gone there and, and done that. But uh, I've also heard of um, tragedies and uh, mishaps and all kinds of you know, sexual exploitation and things going on. Safety first, you know. I mean, that's what I'm kind of leading to is, is that you can't necessarily crash the gates of heaven. A pill isn't going to give you vision of God. It's a long-term project. And it takes yeah. a great deal of seriousness and spiritual maturity and um, dedication and so on to really culture the kind of life that Houston cultured. You know, we, in the West we want the quick fix, but there is no quick fix. Yeah. Well, Houston's, you know, views on all this, which are pretty sophisticated, are in the book and there's not time to outline them all. But uh, 
you know, Houston would say, thinking of the Native American church, that, yes, psychedelics can give you a vision of God, but you still have to integrate that into your life and into your awakening. And there are many aspects to awakening. You know, as Ken Wilber says, it's not just about waking up, it's about growing up, it's about cleaning up. Full spiritual maturity is more than just non-dual experience. On the other hand, I don't you know, want to be a buzzkill. <laughs> that there is value in those experiences, I would argue. Back in the 60s, so many of us were whoring after the infinite and personal experience of the infinite and putting such a profound premium on that. We still see that working its way through our culture today, that people... They want that experience of the transcendent. And as I, you know, we started this conversation, good for them. We need to have that experience in our lives. But even if the kingdom of heaven is within, Houston and Huxley believed, it's on us to try to create the kingdom of heaven on earth. And if it becomes an entertainment, if it becomes a distraction from trying to get traction in the world on social justice issues, human rights issues, environmental issues. I mean, do we need a lot of people who are having non-dual experience walking on a planet that's overheated <laughs> to the point where we can't exist here anymore? That sooner or later, uh, the rubber has to meet the road. I mean, I would even say, and again, my coffee's working on me too hard, that I see a lot of times with some some people who are whoring after the infinite in the sense that they're kind of camped out at Kripalu or Esalen, places that I strongly endorse and, and have taught at. You know, it's like, don't postpone kindness is I think what I'm trying to say. Don't say, oh, I'll do all that other stuff once I've reached perfect uh, non-dual continuous experience that the world needs us right now. We need to, to uh, we need to, you know, we're beings that have bodies that live in a world of, of material parameters and uh, people need our help. And that, that was what bothered Houston about Leary is that he was putting such a premium on states that he put no attention at all on traits of behavior. I mean, one question I would ask that segues into maybe more discussion on the point you just raised is whatever a person is doing, whether it's what Leary was doing or what people are now doing with ayahuasca or, or whether they're engaged in some meditation thing that they've been doing for many years or whatever they're doing, how's that working out for you? I mean, you know, how's your life? Uh, how happy are you? Great. You know, and, and how 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 are your relationships, your friendships, and you know, what do you, you know, how's what's the quality of your life? What the pr the proof of the pudding is in the, well, you should know them by their fruits, I guess. The proof of the pudding is the eating. Um, you can kind of a spiritual practice of any nature, chemical or meditational or whatever, um, should should and will have an influence on you. So how is that influence showing up? And, exactly. Yeah, and might it be time to you know try something else if 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 things aren't going so well from what you've been doing for? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like um, how do you get along with your mother? I mean, you see it uh, in in some people's even description of their experience. Like, I love to go to this retreat center because when I'm there, everybody's so spiritual, and we're talking about spiritual things, and the vibe is so wonderful and welcoming and blissful. And then they report that when I leave the campus of whatever retreat center after a week, 
they have a kind of noetic tan. <laughs> they have a kind of a, a, an afterglow of that that lasts a few days. But then very quickly, they feel like they want to run back inside the retreat center. And, you know, from a, a Buddhist perspective, and, and Buddhists who are listening to this know exactly what I'm talking about, uh, the Buddhist message is we have the most to learn from our enemies. And there are no true enemies in Buddhism, but the idea is those that piss us off or those that push on us in a way that compromises our ability to be centered, those are the ones we have the most to learn from. Those are the ones that can teach us patience. Those are the ones who can show us where we still have work to do on the emotional level and uh, uh, getting over our own ego, perhaps, and things like that. Yeah, I think the Dalai Lama once referred to the Chinese as my friends, the enemy, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that he has no hatred toward them. You know, Houston Smith once said that's one of the greatest miracles he's ever uh, witnessed. So I know it's close to your heart, and I believe it was to Houston's. And I shouldn't put him in the past tense because he's still alive, although barely so. I mean, he's... Barely so. Yeah, he's just hanging in there these days. And we're speaking now in March of 2016, but he's more or less on his deathbed, and it's, it's an honor to be having this conversation about him while he is still alive. The whole thing about states versus traits and how you shall know them by their fruits and the things you were starting to say about being generous and, and uh, compassionate and helping in some way and, and so on and so forth, which has often been characteristic of spiritual people. There's a guy named Radhanath Swami, whom you may know, whom I interviewed uh, years ago, who's a leader in the Hare Krishna movement. He feeds like 250,000 children a good meal every day and has eye clinics and things like that in the in Mumbai area, I think it is. All sorts of different spiritual leaders have embarked upon social missions. And I think probably if you talk to them, they would regard that both as an expression of their spirituality and perhaps also as a means, well, as a kind of a natural outpouring of compassion that, that results from having a full heart, which is one of the characteristics of spiritual awakening. It's not just plain vanilla consciousness waking up, but, but faculties such as the, the heart, compassion, wake up. And actually engaging in activities like that can be a spiritual practice in and of themselves. They can attenuate the ego and get one's attention off of oneself and onto the other. Adam Bucko, whom I interviewed at the Science Nando Alley conference, I tried to ask him this question, can what you're doing be seen as conducive to your own evolution? And he didn't even care. It was like he was so into it and wanting to help the, the suffering people that he wasn't even thinking of himself anymore. I think that shows how conducive it is to his spiritual evolution. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that like you said, the ego isn't there. What a wonderful person he is, doing yeah. such incredible work. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary. There are lots of good examples of that in history, right? St. Francis mm -hmm. is a good example of that sort of phenomenon. I don't know if it always happens. I think that... Um, People who've done more of the cleaning up, growing up work are more likely to move in that particular direction. I'm thinking of Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. They actually expressed some, you know, mild anger towards the various gurus and uh, paramparas, lineages of saints in India, that they so rarely did anything that was uh, social activism. 
And if you look at the Ramakrishna movement, that's one of the things they pride themselves on is how much social outreach they do. And I think a lot of the the tendencies among Hare Krishnas and others in India today to start their own outreach movements, social welfare movements, was inspired by the work of the Ramakrishna order. It's become kind of a modern trend, so to speak, to recognize a need a need to a walk our talk, so to speak. Somebody posted a comment on YouTube just the other day uh, on one of my interviews. The comment was something along the lines of, the world is illusory, so who's doing what for whom if you engage in social action? You're just sort of polishing up an illusory thing, and you know we should just be focused on truth, on reality, on, on pure knowledge. And I'm sure Houston would have disagreed with that. I've heard other contemporary spiritual teachers say things like that. So, so what do you think Houston would say to that kind of a comment? It's, a, it's profoundly wrong. Yeah, you know, from a God's eye view of reality, everything is always all right, capital A, capital R, that from a God's eye view, even on the deepest levels of our own being, there's nothing we can do wrong. But down here in the world where people bleed and where people starve to death and where global warming is taking place, on this level, we should most definitely get involved. I'm I'm suspecting that the Jews who survived Auschwitz wouldn't like this idea that uh, the camp shouldn't have been liberated because what difference does it make on the God's eye level of things? You know, ignorance and suffering should be attacked from all sides. And one of those sides is down here where we live. Yeah. Well, there was a, a saying that you, you and I both heard Marshy say many times, which is that knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. And in a similar way, kind of reality is different in different states of consciousness. And uh, he was a big one on dealing with each level appropriately, not confusing levels. You know, if you have a an infected toe, go to the doctor or something. Don't just say it's an illusory toe. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, even you and I, like, you know, if we say and we agree, and I think you and I do completely agree on this inside of our shared viewpoint, that the deepest level of your being and the deepest level of my being is the same level of being. That, you know, it's the absolute looking out through two different sets of eyes. And so, okay, in our essential and deepest nature, this God's eye view of things, we're the same. Okay, but that doesn't mean I'm going to come over to your house and drive your car because I am you and I am the car and I am that. Okay, there's also a recognition that on the level of the ocean, we're one, but on the level of the waves, we're two. It seems obvious, but, you know, the way some people talk, it doesn't seem obvious to them anyway. And... Given what you just said, I mean, to take absurd examples, I don't drive my car into a bridge because the bridge and my car are one. You know, there's so many absurd examples you could bring up. But again, if people are suffering, yeah, fine, their their eternal, unmanifest, cosmic being is not suffering. That's beyond suffering. But on the relative level, you know, they're suffering and, and something, it behooves us to try to help them. And, a toothache and, hurts. And if you're a dentist, pull that tooth out. And speaking of global warming, I mean... <laughs> Sorry to laugh, that's funny, toothache to global warming. Yeah, I don't know. You had, you had been speaking <laughs> of it earlier. 
you know, I have an ongoing argument with a friend who doesn't believe it's true and thinks it's some kind of government conspiracy to raise money through carbon taxes or something. But, but it could be the most dire problem facing humanity. And if we think the Syrian refugee and migration crisis is a problem, imagine if we have to evacuate all the world's coastal cities in Bangladesh and places like that all at once what kind of social chaos there's going to be and how many people are going to die and so on and so forth. That will impact us all financially and in many other ways. It won't just be something we can easily brush off as illusion. And the reason I'm bringing that up and the reason is just that I've always felt and feel strongly that there's a very deep and direct practical implication to spiritual development individually and collectively that it is the ultimate antidote to any and all problems. Not that the problems don't have to be dealt with on their own level, but that it's, it's without that deeper awakening, there's a kind of a foundation missing for really changing the consciousness that gives rise to the problems in the first place, reminiscent of that quote that Einstein is famous for. You know, would Houston have agreed with that? Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, that was his whole career was recapturing that voice of the ancients that told us that we need to embrace the transcendent aspect, the metaphysical aspect of what we are. But, you know, uh, relative to your global warming comment, you're not going to be able to grow spiritually if you don't exist. True. Or if you're starving to death or have some terrible disease because all the diseases are going wild and in a a warming planet. Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One time George Harrison was asked, do you still believe all you need is love? And he said, yeah, I'm sticking to it. All you need is love and a sandwich. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That, you know, like you say, if if you have no food in your stomach and you can't even get up because you're dehydrated, how are you going to put any attention on your spiritual growth as these problems of global warming continue and exacerbate, then it's on us to, if we're going to create uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth, then we've got to help people at least exist. Well, it's like, yeah, we need bodies to evolve and we need planets for bodies to live on. I saw Buckminster Fuller speak at the Amherst SEI Symposium in the summer of 71. I don't know if you were there, but he was famous for a book. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. Great. And, I saw and, you there. I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, that, he had that book, Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, seeing the world as a, as a spaceship with very limited resources and, you know, very sort of a delicate ecostructure that we depend for our very existence on, the, on. Yeah. But, you know, improving on that, I think if we look at it as a series of resources that helps us survive, it's still putting too much attention on us. I think we're really only going to get to the healthiest place when we start seeing the planet as home and saying, hey, you know, these other beings exist on their own. They don't exist just for what we can do with them. They're not just a resource for humanity. They have their own value. There was an old book on environmental ethics called Do Trees Have Standing? And it was basically saying, should there be environmental laws and environmental rights uh, of other beings, you know, before all this was really as current as it is today? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, ideologically, when we can see ourselves as part of the life of the planet and that the planet has its own value and its own dignity that we should respect, then uh, we're more likely to get where we need to go. 
Well, if we really are the self in all beings, if that which we essentially are, you were talking a minute ago about the two of us really being one, looking out through two different sets of eyes, then the Amazon rainforest is our lungs in a very personal sense, you know, and and all these various species, hundreds of them going extinct every day, are appendages of our own body that we are lopping off. Yeah. I have a student at the college right now who's back only very recently from Afghanistan and he has a service dog and he gets very nervous and he gets very upset, this veteran. When he gets really off-center, he'll take the dog, his service dog, and he tells me that he makes eye contact with the service dog. And the peace that the service dog is experiencing, he can plug into that Mm -hmm. and use it as a touchstone and a resource and of course, I was thinking, well, it's not just that the dog is calm, but it's the you know eyes of the mirrors of the soul kind of idea. He finds something of his deeper self inside the dog's spirit or yeah. being. Nice. Okay, you and I love talking to each other, and we could probably sit here all day with occasional bathroom and food breaks and keep talking. Actually, it's kind of impressive. I've been watching the view count, and it's it's actually been creeping up throughout this conversation. It, it was started in the 40s, and then it hung in the 50s for a while. Now it's up to 71. So I guess we're not boring people. Look at you new people. <laughs> <laughs> so we must be doing something right here. We've been going for about two hours, so we should probably get around to wrapping it up. But there are probably dozens of things that we could have talked about, you know, that we haven't because we've just been rambling all over the place with all kinds of things that interest us. Getting back to Houston one more time, what is important about Houston that you and I haven't discussed during this interview that you want to be sure to bring out before we wrap it up? A couple of points, I would say. One is... And this relates to something you said earlier, Rick, about how people in a particular religion can confuse a means for an end and they can become so focused and dogmatic about their own tradition that um, they're starting at the place. Academics in the study of religion often call them the exclusivists because they're saying my religion is right and all the rest of you are stupid and deluded. I'm a hard-shell Christian, and all these Muslims coming into my country, uh, Hindus coming into my country are compromising America, confusing their religion with uh, Jeffersonian democracy. And so they're exclusivists. And then there are also people, Houston points out, that are inclusivists. And inclusivists can mean well but do wrong. And what he meant by that is some people believe all the religions are really saying the same thing that all the different religions are really giving one message and they try to conflate those religions or homogenize them into or distill them into one particular viewpoint, whatever it is, some form of universalism. And Houston felt that's wrong. Like, first of all, it's insulting to some members of religion because, for instance, Buddhists don't believe there's a creator God. They don't believe in a creator God. They don't posit creation in the way that we do in the West. They see it differently. So since they didn't posit a creation, they don't posit a creator. Uh, We can just leave that for now. The point is that would Jews believe with that? Would Christians agree with that, that there is no creator? That isn't the same thing. And we can give so many examples of how the religions differ. So Houston Smith, in a sense, is important because he gave a third choice. So there are exclusivists and there are inclusivists, but Houston was giving this third choice of saying, 
if we split the religions into an exoteric aspect and an esoteric aspect, then we realize that exoterically, the religions differ from each other quite dramatically in relative to their own populations, their own economic and uh, environmental settings, their own languages, those exoteric forms have tremendous value and function in those societies. But also recognizing that there's this uh, esoteric level where we should recognize that their mystics very often reveal a pattern of similarity. And so that, that's one thing I think if people read the biography of Houston Smith and they explored those ideas with them, they would really enjoy. Here's a paragraph I extracted on that very point. He, he said, for the esoterics, the physical characteristics of religion have only provisional importance, but for the exoterics, they are the absolute truth, and justifiably so, because those people need secure structures to cling to. Esoterics shouldn't confuse esoterics by emphasizing the underlying unity. The external structures should maintain their differences. Yeah. You know, like if you're using a trail map to climb a trail up a mountain, but you've actually got the wrong map for that trail, you know, that's when you can become confused. That the idea is that every trail is an established pathway uh, up the mountain. Now, is everybody climbing the mountain? No. Do they need to be? Well, I, I wish they would. I wish they would be that experienced. But at the same time, and as I said, there's a value in the religions, even on the, on the exoteric level. Uh, so there's one piece of Houston's message, is that third choice in religion. And then another thing that, always, that struck me about it, when I first read uh, his book, the first time I met Houston Smith, by the way, was probably in about 77 at the University of Hawaii. I was a grad student there. And uh, meeting Houston Smith for me was like meeting, I don't know, like some 15-year-old girl meeting Justin Bieber these days, maybe <laughs> something like that. Yeah. You know, I've met some movie stars. I'm not that impressed with that. In many cases, I don't know what movies they were in, sorry to say. But meeting Houston Smith, oh, wow. I mean, because he was such a luminary and such a hero of mine. I mean, I don't even know what I said to him. When we met later and became friends, he said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. And I told him this embarrassing story where I had a question for him. And when I got up to ask it, my mind was a complete blank. I, I don't know what I said. You know, something like, hey, do you like this shirt? You know, like, <laughs> I, I could change it if you don't like it. I mean, what does the 15-year-old girl say to Justin Bieber? Oh, I can't see, right. But anyway, 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 he had written a book called Condemned to Meaning, uh, one of his very early books. And that book was very powerful for me because in some sense it explains the entire human condition. If people can understand the import of that one book, uh, you know, we could all hold hands and sing We Are the World or, or, or whatever. Because in that book he, he, he begins with a quote from the French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty who once said, because we are present to a world, we are condemned to meaning. And what uh, Merleau-Ponty meant by that was, at some point very early on in childhood or the beginning of our journey, we realize that there's me and then there's you. There's me and then there's a world of external objects and people and events. Then what is implicit in that dynamic is the idea what is my relationship to that other? What is the relationship of myself to this world of objects, people, and events? 
And so now uh, there's the condemned to meaning part, is that because we will be forced to interact with the world, then we're condemned to wonder about our relationship to it. As we wonder, and now I'm saying all humans everywhere always, then certain fundamental questions float up in our mind. Who am I? What is this other? What is my relationship to it? Why am I here? Is there a purpose to my existence? As we start answering those questions, those, you know, life's big questions, what is my relationship to the other species? What is my relationship to the planet? What is my relationship to other genders? How many genders are there? When we ask those questions, then if we answer those questions, and every human culture has, then they suggest a, a secondary set of questions. Okay, if I say I'm here because a supreme being created me, okay, what is my relationship to this supreme being? What is the nature of that supreme being? Those uh, secondary and tert tertiary questions get answered, and all of those answers constellate into a religion or an ideology or a philosophy. And as we answer those questions, they can be very useful for a particular human society to find meaning in life and form a grounds of a shared ethic in a society. But the problem can be that they also intermediate between us and the world of existence. It's like um, if you were a filter of a sort. Exactly. So if you, it's like if you, I was going to say, if you're wearing blue sunglasses, yeah. everywhere you look, you see blue. So you might accidentally think you live in a blue world <laughs> and you don't realize that just cutting to the chase, if the world is by default, and this is an analogy, yellow, and we see it through blue sunglasses, it looks green. But if we're from Mongolia and we're raised with a lens of values that are red sunglasses, if you're following the analogy, then when we look at the yellow world, the world looks orange. And people, whether we're talking about in a marriage or we're talking about people uh, in a society relative to another entirely different society, they don't understand the way they see the world is got an agenda and that uh, they're wearing glasses in that sense. You can have two people, one from India and one from the United States, and one guy is saying, oh, I love the green world, you know, not realizing they're seeing it through the blue glasses. And the person from India is saying, oh, the world is not green, it's orange. <laughs> and then the person with the blue glasses says, hey, I'm looking right at it. And the Indian says, I'm looking right at it too. There it is, world. <laughs> I'm going through this quickly, but in Condemned to Meaning, Houston is making a very good point, which is uh, cultural relativity. That if you, if you aren't able to, at some point, realize, even in a friendship, that, okay, I've got to listen. I've got to stop talking, and I've got to listen to what this person is saying because they're trying to report the, the reality of how this looks from their own perspective, then there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict. And, and we're seeing it all over the world today. Do you think that there is some ultimate reality that is what it is, regardless of our 
perspective on it that it obviously just like things like gravity work just fine whether or not we understand them you know photosynthesis uh, nuclear fusion all those things have been happening for billions of years without our having any understanding of it and even when we had really weird scientific understandings of those things which were to- which were totally wrong it didn't alter the way they actually function uh, because they're not dependent upon our understanding. So in a larger spiritual sense, do you think that there is a, a, a sort of a ultimate universal reality? Well, maybe we're getting right back to the perennial philosophy here, which exists independent of anyone understanding it or to whatever, to whatever degree of clarity understanding it. Or do you think that reality itself is sort of relative and uh, that in, it varies according to the perceiver in question? Well, I think the deeper part of what we're talking about right now, the the more significant part of what we're talking about right now, is that, uh, yes, there's the sun, and there's the moon, and there's gravity, and there are these things that all people in all culture can't deny, because there they are. You know, whether you understand the laws of gravity or not, you still weigh whatever you weigh. I weigh about 200 pounds. And then there's consequences of lugging that much weight around and blah, blah, blah. Especially of, as they get older. falling off buildings that you shouldn't falling be climbing in the first place. Did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know why I'm laughing about that. It's not very funny, actually. Dana there's, broke his leg falling off a building because he was into climbing. So anyway, he paid <laughs> for it. Qualia, there's a qualia level to existence besides the things that confront us as facticities. And this is what I'm talking about with the glasses is that human beings still have to interpret the significance of those things they're confronted with. And I don't think non-dual experience is an exception to that. I think that the non-dual experience, when we bucket it back into the body, when we bring it back into the world of human interaction, then we still have to interpret what the experience is Do you see what I'm saying? We have to make sense of the experience first. What was it that happened to me? Uh, Some people are terrified of the experience who've had it. There have been a lot of reports of that. I think that's because by definition, if the non-dual experience is full-blown, it pretty much necessitates the dissolution of the ego, of a personal sense of individuality, at least temporarily. And that can be terrifying because one feels that everything I thought I was is disappearing here is gone yeah and so you know a new interpretation rises up is that oh okay maybe this is good that my ego is being set aside and softened up and and whatnot so the the experience has to be interpreted and then it has to be applied so you know if we say well no it's an absolute experience it's an unchanging experience well you know there are relative absolutes in the the sense that the sun is there too every day day after day it'll be there when the planet's gone and we have to make sense of those experiences in our relative lives i mean really what i'm talking about is in philosophy there's a category of problems that are called qualia problems and they deal with issues of quality so science deals with quantity and science can say Dana, you weigh exactly 204 pounds. I know that because I had to go to the doctor yesterday. Nothing serious, my annual checkup. So you weigh exactly 204 pounds. Okay, I'm six foot two, so for my height, that's not a lot. Okay, 
no reason to lose weight because it isn't necessarily bad for your health. Okay, science can say if Dana, if you weigh the right amount, you're going to live a long life. Or you're going to live longer than if you're a big fat guy who smokes cigarettes. But what science can't say is the big fat guy smoking cigarettes can say, you know what, I'd rather enjoy my life now in the way I want to than live a long life. Okay, science can't tell me I shouldn't make that qualitative decision. Do you see what I'm saying? I do, but my response to that was that, you know, science would say that, the obese guy would say that, but then spirituality in most of its expressions might say, yeah, but are you really enjoying it? And is being unhealthy really, um, are you doing justice? Are you honoring the, the gift of this precious instrument through which you can live the divine? Of course, there were big guy, fat guys who smoked cigarettes who lived the divine, like Nisargadatta. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's exceptions to every generality. But my point is that's a qualitative judgment. Yeah. It's a qualitative judgment on life. And so we're always going to be in a situation where we have to interpret those experiences, whatever, all experience, whatever the experience is, that no experience comes with its own interpretation at least none I've ever had. We put the value on these things in this world of our dialectical relationship of subjects and objects. We will always have to. I mean, this is why, quite frankly, if we look at people like Rumi and we look at Meister Eckhart, yes, they're talking about this very similar experience. And yet, if we look into the ethics of their behavior, we don't find a perfect parody. We don't find them behaving in the same way. You know, let's go back to Andrew Harvey and Mother Mira, that they had very different views on uh, being gay and, and homosexual, about the ethics of whether it was legitimate, you know, uh, correct behavior, correct moral behavior. I think that's always going to go on. If it didn't always go on, I think that we would find... Uh, maybe less disagreement between Buddhists and Hindus, for example. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that you still have these arguments about when we experience this non-dual reality, is it the essence of the self or is it the not-self? Is it Atman or is it an-Atman? Like, okay, now we're down in this world of interpretation and, and most efficacious interpretations. And I, I, I don't know if we'll ever fully be rid of that. I think that my argument really was Houston Smith's argument, and that is we don't need to be rid of it. I love the mystery of having to live with different interpretations, but open-mindedness is what we need. The ability to be more tolerant of different perspectives, even being willing to celebrate that, hey man, it could be kind of cool to look through red sunglasses. I'm kind of tired of looking through the blue sunglasses <laughs> all the time. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Wouldn't the world be boring if there was only one way to interpret non-dual experience as well as our everyday experience? It would be, and I think it would be unnatural if by natural we mean what we see God doing, which is, you know, just a infinite proliferation of diversity and variety. How interesting would the Amazon rainforest be if there were only one kind of plant and one kind of bird? <laughs> you know, there's just yeah. like tremendous variety. I think kind of one way of looking at it is 
that we can agree, and probably we do agree, that there is a sort of a, a universal, fundamental, ultimate reality, but that we're all, as instruments of that, as reflectors of that, as tools of the divine, if you will, we're each unique. And therefore, probably our perception of that, and all, at the very least our expression of that, our understanding, our behavior, everything else, is all going to differ slightly from one to the next. And if we can keep that in mind, then we don't mind the differences because we just realize, well, I'm just one sense organ of the infinite. The nose has its function, but the ears have a different function. So I'm a nose, this guy's an ears. And, you know, (laughs) uh, I guess that's quite literal in my case. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess I made the point that spiritual people are always about getting on to the universal value of life. Well, if you've really done that, then it begins to percolate into your understanding and behavior and you become more tolerant and all-embracing of other relative expressions. You don't feel like, you know, mine is the only valid perspective or the superior perspective or anything else. You know, we're all just sense organs of the infinite. Well, you know, uh, well said, well said. I think that, uh, you know, you interviewed uh, Ken Rinpoche Lubsang Seton on your program Mm -hmm four or five years ago, and he's going to be here in Portland in a couple of weeks. And he always points out, if you want to walk comfortably in the world, and he uses as an analogy, if I want to walk comfortably on the planet, I can go two ways. I could cover the entire planet Earth with rubber and walk on the Earth barefoot, and I would be comfortable wherever I went. Or I could just put a little bit of rubber on the bottom of each one of my feet, and then everywhere I go, uh, rocky or not, I can comfortably walk. And so Tibetan Buddhists believe wisdom always manifests as compassion. If you are getting your own house in order in such a way that you're exhibiting behavior where you walk more gently on the earth, then you're getting somewhere that you can actually use that as, and I believe that, quite frankly, Rick, You can use that as a legitimate yardstick. Is your behavior becoming more patient? Is your behavior becoming more open-minded? Is your behavior becoming more tolerant? Okay, you're getting somewhere. Even if you feel like, okay, I'm not having this other yardstick of non-dual breakthrough and and regular non-dual experience, don't sell yourself short, you know, that if, if you are becoming more patient that's something we the world really needs yeah. yeah it does which brings up a whole other topic of discussion that we could go on about we sort of touched on it and and that is that you know, what are what are ultimately the criteria of awakening or enlightenment um, are they externally observable or is there just some ultimate uh, subjective criteria that only those who have that experience can verify for themselves uh, whether they're sitting in a cave or busy in the marketplace. I don't like that one. You don't? Why? You know, that, that one plays in too much to the... I've spent too much time in India in too many ashrams and mutts, which is what you know they call monasteries, to feel comfortable with that one. Like, oh, you know, if you are as great as me, you would understand how great I am. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, all right. But that's sort of a, a distortion of it because... A person who is generally enlightened probably wouldn't say that, and you know, they might not say anything, which actually would probably be a point in their favor. Maybe I'm misinterpreting because 
you know, one of the things that as someone who, you know, has spent their whole life looking at this scene as it's grown up, because, you know, academically, I'm very interested in Westerners who've become interested in uh, Asian religions. Like, why did they do that? What, what's the attraction to all that? And, and looking at this situation over time, then it's interesting to me certain dynamics. Like, you're going to be more successful as a non-dual teacher if you're good-looking. You're going to be more successful if you're an extrovert. You're going to be more successful if you wear a shawl. <laughs> you're going to be more successful if you don't smoke cigarettes. Sorry, I thought it was wrong about that. Shouldn't have done that. Do you see what I'm saying? That there's certain profiles that we have conjured a sage on the stage kind of profile. And I, I think that people, myself included, if we go to hear a spiritual teacher speak, there could be some old, you know, black guy or some old cleaning lady who's standing there who happens to be introverted. They happen to be not attractive physically, who actually is having the richer, deeper experience. And we, we have blind spots around that. You know, we've kind of created a culture around what the great one looks like. Well, you, you know, I mean, the yardsticks yeah, using to measure to measure greatness have more to do with physical beauty and what we look like in a yoga. Leotard. Well, obviously they shouldn't. I mean, and there's that you remember the verses in the Gita where Arjuna says, you know, what are the signs of the sage of steady intellect? How does he sit? How does he walk? You know, how does he speak? He's asking for external criteria. And Lord Krishna goes, answers him with subjective criteria that wouldn't be externally observable. You know, I don't think either you or I, or perhaps most of the listeners, think that there's any kind of correlation between physical attractiveness and shawl wearing and extroversion. Although, you know, yeah, obviously the ones who make that kind of impression become more popular usually, but maybe they have to in order to have a teaching role. Well, I hate to attach physical attractiveness to it, but there has to be a certain amount of extroversion anyway for a person to want to get up on a stage and talk. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you know, this is a bigger subject and we don't need to talk about it. It's fine with me. But people will often say, I went to see a concert last night. You and I are both music lovers. And uh, they'll say, I went to see a concert and it was so amazing and it was so beautiful and so wonderful. And so I think people recognize they're getting spiritual teachings through going to a music performance or hearing a symphony or mm -hmm. Sri Chinmoy. Do you remember Sri sure. Chinmoy? All of his teachings were him playing music and him reading poetry and, and lifting and, and airplanes or whatever he used to do. He used to do these feats <laughs> <Yeah>. of strength. <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess what I'm arguing for is that that non-dual experience can be expressed in a wide range of ways. And there's no reason to say I'm going to see a spiritual teacher tonight. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is if we expand the concept of spiritual teacher more broadly then we can, I don't know, go see Noam Chomsky and feel like we're getting quote-unquote spiritual information. Why not? Or a rock concert or... Uh... Sure, but there we're, we're kind of like, I think we're going a little bit far afield. I mean, what the question was... What are quote, the criteria? Yeah. What are the... Can it be made scientific? Are there any repeatable, publicly investigatable criteria for spiritual awakening? so that it's not just left to some person's subjective account of 
what they're experiencing, but others, you know, if they hear that account and get interested, can go follow steps A, B, and C and arrive at the same experience. And is there any verifiability? I'm I'm asking, I guess. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this neurophysiology stuff is very interesting. You know, some people will say, all right, if I can map the brain state and I can describe, while you say you're having this non-dual experience, this is the brain state that goes with that. Now that I've mapped it, that reduces the authenticity of the experience. If you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That some people interpret it that way. Like, oh, you're just talking about your, your brain was in a different configuration and that gave you the illusion of this non-dual experience. If you reduce it down to thinking that states of consciousness are just epiphenomenon of brain functioning rather than actually being correlates of it, you know what I mean? Like, for instance, near-death experiences. Uh, some people say, well, I really had this experience, and I saw my father, and I looked down from the ceiling and saw the surgeons, and the guy was wearing a blue hat or whatever. Uh, they can identify things. I saw a pair of sneakers on the balcony uh, outside my hospital window. Um, and others would say, oh, you know, they try to dismiss it because it conflicts with their um, paradigm by saying things like, well, you're just hallucinating because your brain was shutting down and getting deprived of oxygen. When you bring up neurophysiology, it opens up the whole topic of can there be neurophysiological correlates to higher states of consciousness, which doesn't mean that they are only neurophysiological phenomena, but that that the brain behaves a certain way when one is experiencing them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, not, not only do I see what you mean, but that was actually my point, which is that there's a neurophysiological correlate to an experience as you're describing it doesn't mean that neurophysiological correlate is creating the experience like for example if i eat a slice of apple pie which i'd like to do because it's lunchtime and i'm hungry (laughs) uh, if i eat an apple pie then uh, there will be a neurophysiological correlate of yummy but that doesn't mean the pie doesn't exist. It didn't eliminate the pie because there's a neurophysiological correlate. Right. Your brain didn't experience. create the pie or anything. Exactly. Your brain exactly. just interpreted the experience of the pie in a certain way. That's right. Right. And if, the, and if there is this non-dual uh, neurophysiological correlate of non-dual experience that can be described in a very profound way then I think that is evidence of, you know, this is your brain and this is your brain on God, you know, <laughs> that, there, that there can be some strong evidence. The, the thing that will always be true in my estimation is if by definition we say that that reality in its purest form is metaphysical beyond the physical, or haven't you just exempted the absolute from quantification? If you say that that what's most fundamental to reality isn't a thing. There's nothing to put under the microscope. There's nothing to see through the telescope. You can see evidence of its existence as the neurophysiological correlate of a non-dual experience would be. 
Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That well, science, physicists say that what's fundamental to reality isn't, isn't a thing. They say that. But they can see evidence of it with the Large Hadron Collider or whatever, the Higgs boson exactly. and different things. Exactly. They're, they're seeing sort of manifest evidence of the unmanifest nature of reality. And that's what we can see, I think, in the brain. And it would stand to reason that there are neurophysiological correlates to transcendent experience as there are to any experience, to waking, to dreaming, to sleeping. Each of those has a unique you know, neurophysiological signature. If transcendental experience is as profound and radically different as it's cracked up to be, then the brain, if you hooked Ramana Maharshi up to you know, modern instrumentation, you should see a brain that's functioning quite differently than that of the average person, exactly. if you know what to look for. Exactly. And I think, you know, the empirical part that you can do, you know, if you say, well, okay, science will never be able to, to get a hold or a grasp of that which transcends time and space. But uh, if the mystics of all these esoteric traditions are right, and I believe they are based on my experience, you are the instrument, you are the microscope, you are the telescope exactly. that can grok that, that can, that can experience that reality in a way that is... You know, people say, well, that was just your subjective experience. But if, you know, somebody says to me, you know, if I say, oh, I love my daughters, and they say, oh, well, that's just your subjective yeah, experience. That's just serotonin or something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay, get out of the room, you know. Yeah. That we can uh, have this profound experience that we're the instrument. Would, and, you know, it becomes empirical because... And I love, I love this idea. I think it's very attractive to the American mind, quite frankly. We place such a sovereignty on my own choice that the, the teacher says, look, okay, you don't believe that this experience is there or that this experience is possible. Why don't you do this practice for a while? And then, you know, let's have another conversation. Yeah, I love this. But, this whole line of thinking is right up my alley. And there are all kinds of things that physicists tell us, I'm just taking physics as, as an example, that um, I'll never personally verify because I don't have the time or the, or the ability to get a PhD in postgraduate work in physics and then you know get to work at the Large Hadron Collider or something. Yet these guys who do that, the specialists so to speak, report back to us that yes, this, that and the other thing are happening. So you know, in terms of the spiritual realm, we all have an instrument in our possession that is more sophisticated than the Large Hadron Collider, actually, even a single cell of it is, and that has the capability of experiencing the transcendent. And so, as you just said, you can tell anyone, you can take the, the world's staunchest atheist and say, all right, fine, hang on to your atheism, but do X, Y, and Z for X number of years, and it, it will probably be fewer years than it takes to you know, qualify to run the Large Hadron Collider. And you may very well agree with my perspective, which is that there's this transcendent reality. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's a kind of a staunch recalcitrance about, uh, well, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to. Uh, I'm thinking of certain uh, colleagues of mine that I won't mention that We'll have conversations about this at conferences, and they'll, I'll say, well, you know, we're talking entirely on the level of ideas. Let's not have that concept addiction. Let's say, okay, you know, if I took you to Paris, would you believe Paris was there? Oh, yeah, I couldn't deny it because there it would be. Okay, well, you know, why don't you try one of these practices, tried and true pathways up the mountain for a while, 
and then let your own experience, you know, get in an argument with your own experience. You know, I'm not asking you to accept it on, on the basis of faith. That's why I wonder about Sam Harris in a way, because it seems to me that if his practice is really effective and if he keeps at it, although I guess Buddhists never get to the point where they think God exists, but it seems to me that ultimately, if the practice is capable of it, one would arrive at the sort of recognition that there is this divine intelligence that permeates everything and that, oh, that's what God is. So that's what they're talking about. You know? You'd eventually kind of wake up to that. Well, Mahayana Buddhists see it that way. Well, Mahayana Buddhists talk about non-dual experience, that there is this something that transcends samsara, that idea. Do you know the Roald Dahl story of, the? I think it's the incredible story of Henry Sugar or something uh-huh. like that? It actually fits in here because it's quite a wonderful story about Henry Sugar is a gambler and he learns about some mystic who can read minds And so he thinks, wow, that would be useful for gambling. You know, I'd be such a good gambler if I could do that. So he starts doing all these yogic practices and meditation to become this great gambler. But as time goes by and he develops these abilities, he hadn't anticipated that his heart would also awaken. And so by the time he really perfects these abilities and he wants to go to Las Vegas and cash in on them, he sees it as morally wrong to do that. That's you cool. know, <laughs> yeah, it's a cool story. Great for children. Yeah. So we should probably wrap it up, but I, I just got a nice uh, email from our friend Craig Holiday. Remember Craig from you, oh, met, sure. you met him at Sand? And I've hey, inter- Craig. Yeah, he's been watching. <laughs> I, I interviewed him. He said, I just want to share my love to both of you. Love the interview. It reflected depth, compassion, maturity, and wisdom. So nice to see the fruits of a lifelong dedication to wisdom. I was really touched by your meeting. I think it was a good reminder for all tuned in of the continual and ongoing evolutionary nature of the path, the importance of understanding the difference between states and traits, and the role of the heart, compassion, and social responsibility. Two bright lights in our world. Would love Craig. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, talking about a big heart. What a wonderfully heart Craig has. Great guy. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for sending that in. Unless we want to actually break some kind of a record here in terms of the length of a Bat Gap interview, <laughs> we should probably kind of wrap it up. People can tell that we really enjoy talking to each other, and uh, but we'll have to do that on our own time sometimes so as not to yeah. totally bore True. people to death. I uh, always enjoy talking with you, Rick. Thanks yeah. for giving yeah, me, me too. a call. And thanks for those who have hung in there with us. Of course, if it's got boring for you, you hung up, and I don't blame you, but it um, seems like some uh, quite a few people have hung in there, so... Glad to be able to share our thoughts with you for what they're worth. You know, this is a part of my own uh, uh, Buddhist practice. Any part of this that was useful at all for any of us, um, we should dedicate to the benefit of all sentient beings. Um, It's a practice in Buddhism to surrender ego, to remember Mm -hmm. that all Mm -hmm. beings are trying to grow spiritually and that whatever benefit has come out of this, we should surrender to them yeah and i think we would both agree that as much as we enjoy having conversations like this and dwelling on this kind of topic ultimately the value of it is that you know we may in some way be a conduit for greater good to infuse into the world that's kind of the way i see my activities that i you know not that i don't enjoy them personally there's a sort of a personal motivation but at the same time the hope is that I'm making the best use of this gift of life to um, have some kind of beneficial influence on others on the world. 
that's the way I see your activities too, Rick. I mean, I think you're doing a great service. You know, you've uh, created a voice where nobody's captured the flag. You're listening to lots of people from lots of perspectives and letting people make up their own mind. And uh, what a wonderful practice. Kudos to you. Man. Well, thanks. And kudos to all the people that I get to talk to who are my teachers, in a sense. Okay, so let me make a few wrap-up points here. So, as you know by this time, I've been talking with Dana Sawyer, and you, I've already read his bio. You know who Dana is, what he does. We've been talking about Houston Smith, hopefully enough. <laughs> um, but he's, he's been the inspiration for us to have this conversation, and uh, there's a lot more to learn about Houston, and I've really enjoyed reading his book, and those who enjoyed this interview might also enjoy reading it. It's called Houston Smith, Wisdom Keeper. You can find that on Amazon. I'll have a link to it on um, Dana's BatGap page, as well as a link to Houston's website and Dana's website. As I mentioned in the beginning, he's not a spiritual teacher per se. He doesn't lead little satsangs and stuff, but he is leading a trip to India in December, first two weeks of December, with a group of students from his college, and others are welcome to go along for a fee, of course. A friend of mine who lives in Arizona, who's a fan of the show, has signed up for it, and there are a certain number of slots for others to do so. Um, so if that interests you, they can get in touch with you through your website, right, Dana? They can get in touch with me through my website. It's the first two weeks of January, not December. Oh, January, first okay. January. Uh-huh. They can also get in touch with me through the main College of Art website. Okay, maybe I'll put up a link to both places on your right, site. Then. And just some general points about Bat Gap. As most of you know, it's an ongoing series. There are plenty of uh, previous ones, hundreds. You can find them categorized under the past interviews menu. You can find upcoming ones announced on the upcoming interviews thing, which is under future interviews. There's a suggested guest thing there. There's a place where you can subscribe to this as an audio podcast so you don't have to sit for three hours <laughs> watching a video. You can listen to it while you commute or something. There's the donate button. There's a place to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted and a bunch of other things. There's even like a thing where you can download the Bat Gap theme song as a ringtone for your phone. So, <laughs> 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 yeah. so poke around in the menus on, on BatGap.com and you, you'll find all these things. So thanks for listening or watching and thank you, Dana. We'll see you next week.